it was really kind of a moment in the 90s when there was kind of an explosion of queer community studies. So uh, here I was in Philadelphia. It's, I think of it as a kind of forgotten big city uh, in the United States, um, long one of the top two, three, four, or five um, cities in the United States in terms of population, but one without a queer, a strong queer reputation like New York uh, and San Francisco. So I thought, well, let me, you know, let me focus where I am in Philadelphia. And, you know, it turned out to be a really good decision. It turned out Philadelphia had a lot of really great stories that had been untold. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew. And before I introduce you all to the queer public historian, icon who is sitting with me here, Dr. Mark Stein. I want to just remind you all that Mark is not the only queer history San Francisco conference episode that we've released here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. It was truly the gift that keeps on giving. I think it's now an iconic epic queer history conference to have existed in June 2022 in San Francisco. So I've had on the podcast Dominic Janes, who talked about his queer Victorian history with the dandies, the history of the bulge. Yes, the male bulge. <laughs> Jesse Tade, who runs the Queer Modernisms Instagram. We talked all about queer modern art. I had on Ben Miller to talk about his new book, Bad Gays, and the podcast that he runs with uh, Hugh Lemmy. And I also had on Dr. Jake Newsom to talk about his work on Pink Triangle Legacies and all about the history of the Pink Triangle. Okay, but now listen here to my interview with Mark, and then make sure you listen to those other episodes. I am here with Mark Stein, who I want to introduce him to you all. Uh, we are going to be doing all things queer in this discussion, so uh, get ready. And he is the Jamie and Phyllis Pasker Professor of History at San Francisco State University, the author of a book that I first encountered um, when I was an undergrad, City of Sisterly and Brotherly Loves, Lesbian and Gay Philadelphia, Sexual Injustice is another one of his books, Supreme Court Decisions from Griswold to Roe, Rethinking the Gay and Lesbian Movement, and he also wrote The Stonewall Riots, a documentary history. And I'm holding his new book, which is Queer Public History, and it's this beautiful collection of his essays from all the way to the 1980s up until now in 2023. So Essays on Scholarly Activism, Mark Stein, you're here in the house, in the boiler room, in the ivory tower. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, you know, let's start with, I first encountered your work when I 
think you were at UPenn is kind of how City of Sisterly and Brotherly Love and your queer Philadelphia activist work really occurred. And I was drawn to your book because of my new, you know, undergrad 2012 interest in Whitman and homoerotic poetics. And you have this whole chat uh, essay in your book about naming the Whitman Bridge. And there is this controversy, um, you know, but what really drew you to knowing, OK, I need to focus on Philadelphia's LGBT history. Well, I, I had grown up in a suburban New York and went to college uh, in Connecticut, Wesleyan University, which definitely has a very well-deserved queer reputation, although I was mostly straight uh, when I was there in the first half of the 80s. Uh, then I was out of school for four years and spent most of that time in Boston, where I was the editor of the National uh, Queer Newsweekly Gay Community News. And really throughout the 80s, I was doing a combination of scholarship as a student, uh, journalism, both with my campus newspaper and with gay community news, and activism. I was involved in groups in Boston like Mass Act Out, which was our Boston version of Act Up, um, and then eventually a little bit later, uh, Queer Action, which was our version of Queer Nation in Philadelphia. Um, but uh, in 1989, I decided to start grad school uh, after four years out of school and ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania. There was a pioneering lesbian historian there, Carol Smith Rosenberg. And at the time, there were really very few graduate programs where you could study queer history, but Penn was one of them. Uh, Lisa Dugan, for example, before me, had also done her PhD under the supervision of Smith Rosenberg at Penn. So, you know, it was somewhat known as a place to go. Um, I really didn't know very much about Philadelphia at all. Um, but as I began thinking about dissertation topics, uh, it was a moment when there were, there was really a whole cohort of us in grad school, mostly in history or American studies programs, who were doing local histories. Nan Boyd was working on her book on San Francisco, John Howard, his book on the queer South, the queer Mississippi, um, Donna Penn was working on queer Boston, uh, uh, Stephen Maynard on queer Toronto. So, you know, there was really a whole set of us. And, you know, we were joined by more senior scholars like Liz Kennedy working on Buffalo, Esther Newton on, on Fire Island, uh, and then, you know, slightly younger scholars, Dan Hurwitz working on LA. So it was really kind of a moment in the 90s when there was kind of an explosion of queer community studies. So uh, here I was in Philadelphia. It's, I think of it as a kind of forgotten big city uh, in the United States, um, long one of the top two, three, four, or five um, cities in the United States in terms of population, but one without a queer, a strong queer reputation like New York uh, and San Francisco. So I thought, well, let me, you know, let me focus where I am in Philadelphia. And, you know, it turned out to be a really good decision. It turned out Philadelphia had a lot of really great stories that had been untold. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, this is Andrew. So 
You know, when I'm not here in the Ivory Tower boiler room, sometimes I'm actually invited to be on other podcasts as a guest. Well, there is one podcast run by Christian Garcia and um, his co-host, Nate, that I absolutely love. It is called That Old Gay Classic Cinema. So calling all you classic cinema fans out there and those who love queer theme cinema, which I think there's a lot of you who are listening right now where you've uh, perked up. So follow them on Instagram at That OL Gay Classic Cinema. The first ever episode I was featured as a guest, it's The Sound of Music. I got to talk about being Captain Von Trapp in high school, and it's just such an exciting conversation. They've also featured discussions about Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, which features guests from uh, the podcast The Garland Gab and Down the Yellow Brick Pod. There is a deep dive of Cinderella, and recently they had an episode on the film Giants starring Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, and James Dean. And actually, one of the uh, guests, Lauren Randall, I know from Stony Brook University's PhD English department. So shout out, Lauren. Um, you can listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's definitely such a great listen. So why not listen to it after you listen to this current episode on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room? So the Whitman Bridge chapter, um, which focuses, as you said, on a 1950s controversy was one of the things um, that I focused on, but found a lot about Philadelphia that turned out to be really interesting, really unique, uh, really important chapters of the larger national and international story. Yeah, well, you're from suburban New York originally. Do you want to shout out where in suburban New York, Mark? <laughs> Sure. I uh, I know you're on Long Island, so I'm in the other direction. I, I When I was born, my parents lived in Peekskill, you know, a small city on the Hudson River, and then they moved to the next town over, Yorktown, and I lived in a little hamlet that I think of as my hometown um, because I lived there from one and a half to 18 called Shrub Oak. So yes, definitely shout out to my friends from Shrub Oak. Very pretty. Yeah, the Hudson River Valley area yeah a little different than long island i mean i feel like they're similar but having lived here now almost nine years on long island just even like preparing for my interview and being in the traffic even though i'm like halfway out on the island it's a little i like going into westchester because um it's almost a, a breath of fresh air from the highway traffic but uh, <laughs> yes. i'm from no, suburb yeah, yeah yeah and i can add yeah. my mother my mother had two very close first cousins and they all had uh, three children and and they all had grown up in New York City. And of course, rather than move to you know, suburbs in the same direction, one went to Staten Island, one went to Long Island, and then my mom went to Westchester. So we had these, you know, long two or three hour drives for family holidays because they would kind of rotate among the three first cousins. So, yeah, I remember those dreadful those dreadful uh, drives, but my fa father's parents lived in Queens. So, oh, okay. Uh, so know, on so the technically island. on geographic Long Island, although not really considered part of cultural Long Island. Yeah, but all a lot of um, nature to see the beaches. I mean, I grew up when you're talking about Philly and I was so drawn to your book because um, I grew up right outside of Philly. Um, everyone who's heard multiple episodes, I always talk about it, but I grew up in Washington Township, which 
is like right near Rowan University. And a lot of people commute to Philly, 25-ish minutes, depends on the traffic. Um, but I knew about the neighborhood in Philadelphia um, early, just because coming out in high school, that's really where we all started to go when I um, was old enough. Um, right out of high school, we would have our um, college nights but there was like nights where they weren't drinking. So like you could get in that way. Um, so I met people from UPenn and yeah. So like now the neighborhood has, as I'm sure, you know, Mark, all the pride flags on the streets and there's these murals, there's Giovanni's room, which is the used bookstore that I fell in love with, but it is very homey. Like compared to now I'm always in New York city I got to see San Francisco for the first time last year, but I actually found San Francisco and the Castro did remind me a little of that neighborhood where everyone kind of was waving to each other. They knew each other. See, in New York, I just find it's welcoming, but it's just so um, spread out. Like there is no real hub now. It's, you know integrated into all the neighborhoods and you might see people you know but you're probably not going to see them um on your trips it's um doesn't have necessarily that locus that i really do appreciate in philadelphia so you know i want to thank you for bringing that neighborhood history to light in a you know public scholarly way because it really hadn't been done before your book Right. No, and I, I feel the same way. I, I agree with your characterization of all of those places. And I, I just was in Philadelphia for two weeks surrounding the American Historical Association conference and then much delayed uh, trips to archives because of COVID. Um, so I stretched out the visit for two weeks and I, I really love the city. And I love that uh, those aspects that you just described. It's a there's a really um, it's a walking downtown. Uh, so maybe in contrast to San Francisco, you, it's basically the same neighborhood, the political center, the entertainment center, and then the, the gay neighborhood, right? It's all, it's all um, overlapping. And, um, you know, and I, so I love that, that quality uh, of it. And, um, uh, and knowing now as much as I do about the city's rich queer history, on my walks just a few weeks ago in Philadelphia, I would pass hotels where I knew there had been big gay conferences in the 60s, um, uh, apartment buildings where I knew some of my oral history narrators had lived. Uh, so even beyond the, the very visibly marked queer geography of the city, because Philadelphia loves its uh, local history signage, um, and uh, in the last 10, 20 years, some local Historians have really done a great job of, of having queer additions to all of that uh, signage. Um, but even beyond that, there are all these invisible or less visible uh, sites that I recognize as uh, part of Philadelphia's queer geography, um, all right within a kind of 10 by 10 block uh, part of Center City. Yeah, well, and the William Way LGBT Center in Philly I've gotten to explore it. It's, they really did such a nice job preserving that history. And you're right, even in Washington, it might be actually no, right outside the Wanted Street Theater, uh, which I love. Um, they have, I think, a sign about the Stonewall riots, but there was a really important right before the Stonewall riots protest in Philadelphia about gay rights. I forget, you probably know what it's called, but- Yes, yeah, um, yeah. so yeah, so- some of what I, I covered in my 
in my dissertation and then first book, and that's now is visibly marked in the city, the, there was a, a sit-in at, at Dewey's restaurant um, in defense of gay and trans patrons who were being ejected. Uh, that was in 1965, so super early. Then there were the annual reminder demonstrations, 65 to 69, every July 4th. Um, there are those kind of iconic images of Barbara Giddings and Frank Kameny marching in front of, of Independence Hall to call attention to the gaps between the rhetoric um, of the um, American Revolution and the Declaration of Independence and Constitution and the realities of queer life. Uh, and the last of those five annual reminders took place just days after the Stonewall Rebellion, so had some of more, some more of that transgressive character than the previous four um, demonstrations. Um, but then, you know, other things that are, aren't yet uh, visibly marked uh, in the city. So, you know, I, I um, you know, laugh and chuckle whenever I ride over the Walt Whitman Bridge, remembering the more than a thousand letters that I found actually in the Penn archives that were submitted to the Delaware River Port Authority in support of or in opposition to Walt Women as the um, you know as the name for the bridge when it was built uh, in the 50s with many of the letters referencing new um, scholarship that had just come out you know suggesting that Whitman was gay uh, or homosexual or homoerotic or whatever term you know people preferred to use um, but yeah, then I uh, uncovered stories like uh, Kiyoshi Kiramiya, the Asian-American uh, gay man who was essentially born in an internment camp, who became the leading gay liberationist in Philadelphia in the very late 60s and early 70s. Anita Cornwell, who wrote Black Lesbian in White America. Uh, I was able to trace the gay presence at the Black Panther Revolutionary People's Constitutional Convention. So, you know, I was also really you know, pre pleased and proud to be able to tr to trace a more diverse and multicultural queer history uh, than, you know, at least when I did my work, you know, that had been the case um, for some, you know, with some of the uh, earlier queer histories that have been published. Yeah, well, and as you're talking, I'm really getting this sense of what I love about having met you and, you know, looking up to you as an academic mentor this queer public historical profile that you have with scholarship, but just that unlike traditional, quote unquote, I'll put that in quotes, but unlike historians that you probably had to read when you were in PhD coursework and those you had to cite and still cite sometimes, that everything really is about what you're drawn to in your daily life and questions you have about LGBT history to really make it visible, to unearth it in a way, but also to provide it for an audience, like anyone who picks up your book. I mean, whether it's all of your essays in queer public history or whether it's the queer history of Philadelphia, um, that it's for an accessible readership and those who want to learn more about this history. So like, how do you think about that, Mark, in your work? because it's clear to me that this is happening from your own personal experiences. Yeah, it's, uh, it, I, I think of it as really kind of a two-way process. The way my life uh, influenced the things I was thinking, uh, I was interested in exploring and researching and writing about more deeply. Uh, and then all the ways that my, uh, uh, you know, my studies as a student and then as a faculty person, um, 
then uh, I, I was invested in communicating uh, that work to more than just students in a classroom or readers of scholarly works. Uh, so, you know, with respect to the first half, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I'd been a journalist in college and in Boston. Uh, and so, you know, that I think automatically oriented me to broader publics than I think many historians uh, generally imagine, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, but then other political things. So uh, Gay Community News in Boston was very uh, uh, dedicated to uh, feminist politics and to lesbians and gay men working together. And so then when I turned to my dissertation work on Philadelphia, I made relationships between lesbians and gay men, the central analytic of the Philadelphia book. So beyond just doing a local history, that was uh, the central questions that I asked had to do with um, the history of relationships between lesbians and gay men. Uh, you know, I was also uh, very much influenced by conflicts and debates and divisions and coalitions between liberals and radicals or reformers and revolutionaries during my activist years in both Boston and Philadelphia. And that in turn really informed the way that I approached um, those questions, in, and not only in my Philadelphia book, but also in my later work on the Supreme Court, my later work on the general history of the of the gay and lesbian movement. So there are all those ways that um, that my uh, yeah everyday experiences and engagement in activist politics influenced what I wanted to study. Uh, and then you know when I was doing that work, I uh, I you know I was in grad school eighty nine to ninety four. It wasn't very it wasn't entirely clear to me that I would actually have an academic career. Uh, so I, I thought it was equally possible that I was going to end up going back into journalism or go back into some kind of more public intellectual work. Um, but I just was always interested in taking what I was learning and communicating with broader audiences. So right from the get-go, I started writing pieces while I was a graduate student for Gay Community News, for Philadelphia Gay News, uh, um, and I was really proud. One of my years in Philadelphia, they asked me, the, the organizers of Pride asked me to write a long essay. It's included, it's one of the things included in the Queer Public History book, but a long essay on the history that I was uncovering, but written for the thousands of people who were at Pride that year. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, so early in my career then, I, I was mostly uh, orienting that public work to uh, queer audiences through gay newspapers and things like Pride, the Pride program. Uh, and, you know, uh, maybe a quarter of the essays in queer public history reflect, you know, that kind of work. Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the things that got me interested in writing this broad book uh, and collecting the essays published over 30 years and writing introductions that reflect on um, the arc of my personal career was the chance it, it provided for me to reflect on how how much things have changed, and so, you know, increasingly uh, in the you know in the 1990s and then the early 21st century, I had opportunities to publish, uh, say, on the History News Network uh, or in the publications of the American Historical Association or the Organization of American Historians. And here, I don't mean their scholarly journals. I was also doing that kind of work, but I mean their their uh, publications with broader readership, um, you know, and shorter works. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, so another set of the essays in queer public history reflect, uh, you know, the, the things I've been able to produce for broader audiences. But I always found it fed me, you know, scholarly books, at least early in my career, it took me 10 years each. 
Uh, and whereas I could get a quick fix, if I wrote a journalistic essay, I could do it in a weekend, and then I'd get a lot of positive feedback, usually. Uh, and um, I found it motivating, it helped keep me going. Uh, and it, it also gave me feedback, I could, I could gauge uh, public audience responses to the kind of arguments um, that I was developing, and then maybe uh, take that into consideration when I was doing the more conventional scholarly work. So um, uh, so, you know, it was that community engagement, uh, that also then fed back into my scholarly work. Yeah. Well, and you're also really creative in, it makes sense as you talk more about your journalism, um, background with undergrad and having gone into even with, uh, Philly gay news and knowing that genre of speaking to the broader public, um, when you have an essay, and I just love it, called Jonathan Ned Katz Murdered Me as one of your earliest essays, it's also the way that you bring up these topics is creative. It's almost um, memoirist, that type of auto theory that people love to discuss now of putting yourself into the work. And I'm curious, you must have known that you were taking a risk too, putting, you know, playing around with how you're uh, interacting with Jonathan N Ned Katz's historical um, analysis and how he had worked on so much with gay history that you've also opened up a new way of writing and the style. So how have you reflected on that process of just well, playing first, around? Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, and also, we just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives, the list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all 
around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount because you're listening to the podcast. All of you get an automatic 20% off. Use the code IvoryTower for 20% off site-wide on all of their books. So our in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So enjoy your reading, everyone. Yeah, well, first, thank you for, for um, I guess, noticing that and also um, affirming its value. Yeah, well, I've, I've been both criticized and celebrated, I think, for using the first person voice. Many of us who are teachers at the you know college university level probably have that experience of students asking us, can I use I, can I use the first person? And I'm always horrified when students ask that because to me it signals that somewhere along the line they've been told that they can't. And uh, I, I get why we don't always want students to just be navel gazing and writing only about themselves. But I, I hate the thought that they've been discouraged uh, or told that they can't use um, the first person voice. So, uh, you know, as you know, I've done plenty of writing that, that doesn't talk about me at all, that, that is much more conventional. But, um, but uh, yeah, there have also been moments, and I think especially in the shorter journalistic pieces that I've written, where I thought it was important to um, be open and transparent about my personal relationship to the subjects you know, that I was discussing. And, and, you know, maybe just to kind of take a couple of examples from queer public history. So I did a quantitative study of queer historians experiences on the academic job market that did not use the first person. It, it, I was one of the people, one of the several dozen people studied, but um, you wouldn't necessarily know that reading the essay, but then that's kind of paired with a very personal autobiographical account of the five years that it took me to get uh, a secure academic employment. And I, if in that case, I just thought there might be some value in other uh, graduate students struggling to get um, secure academic jobs to read about how I navigated it, the importance of persistence, um, uh, the strategic questions about, you know, how to present yourself as a queer historian. Um, you know, the ups and downs, because I experienced those years, you know, as an emotional roller coaster every year with the academic job market. Uh, yeah, and then there's the essay about Jonathan Ned Katz. Uh, and um, there, so, you know, as as readers of the book will learn, I, uh, I attempted suicide the summer after my first year of college. And queer issues were part of it. There were other, you know, other issues involved that I talk about in the essay. But it, this was a story that all of my close friends knew, uh, you know, for the next decade. But once I entered into academia, I, I, there was a lot of self-silencing. It was not a story that I, that I shared uh, with a lot of professional colleagues, and, uh, and I was concerned, you know, that there might be some professional consequences um, because of the risk that it could play into certain stereotypes about of gay people as mentally unstable mm -hmm. or as you know, emotionally um, sensitive or whatever. 
Um, but here, you know, we're also all reading horrible, the horrible statistics on queer youth suicide um, and attempted suicide rates. And uh, so uh, actually it was Jim Downs that organized an anniversary panel at one of the history conventions. Um, I think it was in 2008. Uh, I think I have that right. Uh, and he asked me to participate, just knowing that Jonathan and Katz had meant a lot to me. And I decided to use it as an opportunity to to share, um, you know, share the story and and the connection to Jonathan and Katz was that I really attributed reading Jonathan and Katz's first book, A American History. Uh, 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 I, I think it it really had life saving effects on me uh, and, and really helped kind of bring me out of the the struggles that um, I was experiencing and the depression that I was experiencing and. Uh, it was a way of of celebrating, but also outing myself. Um, you know, not uh, not about being queer per se, but about being a survivor of a suicide attempt. Uh, and then it took me years, uh, it, it, an additional several years, before I I revised the essay for a, a more public audience. Because after all, the convention presentation was was just to you know fifty or hundred people. Um, whereas I then published it in a you know in a major history publication that presumably went out to thousands or tens of thousands of readers. And that, in a sense, kind of illustrates some of the themes of this book, which is um, how I think many of us, um, uh, it requires courage to do queer history. Um, it's personally moving. It's personally connected. Uh, we often start with smaller audiences, and then over time, we have opportunities to uh, to reach larger audiences, so um, so yeah, I think that's what what was going on with that uh, with that particular essay. Well, and now we can even connect to Jonathan Ned Katz. I mean, I'm Facebook friends with him, and it's such an honor to see his. He has such beautiful paintings that he does now. I'm not sure if you've seen them, Mark, but um, I have. Yeah, yeah, no, he is such a he's really a Renaissance man, and for. For people who don't know who are listening, so Jonathan mm -hmm. Katz really considered one of the founders of gay history as a field, published Gay American History in 1976, did not have a college degree, had roots in really in Black history and left history via his, his father and his family. Um, he's an amazing painter. Uh, he's also you know, written this great um, biography of Eve Adams, lesbian Holocaust um, uh, victim. Um, uh, and uh, and has written important books, not only on gay history, but also on the history of heterosexuality. So also was a really groundbreaking uh, scholar in that field. And in his 80s is still juggling lots and lots of great projects. And I'm super honored that just a few months ago, he asked me to succeed him as the director of his public history website called Out History. Uh, and I started that January 1st. So now I, I'm in touch with him several times a week uh, because he, uh, you know, I need his ongoing uh, mentorship and guidance to figure out how the website works and to talk about um, projects moving forward. But, um, but uh, you know, right now it really reflects his vision uh, and uh, he really wanted Out History to be a space for free, publicly accessible, engaging, exciting, queer historical work. Uh, and so there are two to 300 exhibits up on all sorts of topics. It's mostly US history right now, but I think there's some material um, that stretches beyond the United States and I'm interested in expanding that. I've done 
about six exhibits myself um, for Out History in the past. I, I've, I've loved really working with him on those exhibits. And, uh, and now I have the chance to do more and encourage uh, more queer historians to present their work uh, on the platform. Oh, well, congratulations. That's exciting uh, news. And um, I'm curious, like, to switch from the genre that had more of your personal, um, we could call it even trauma, with, you know, depression, suicide, working through that struggle, um, and turning to this archive of queer history to really you know, find yourself, um, that then you take, you tackle a lot of heavy topics such as, um, the Supreme Court's decision with Roe v. Wade, which has entered back into the conversation, um, unfortunately in limiting rights. So how, how is the process for you, Mark, when you are turning to say, a um, historical analysis that isn't something based on your identity, but it's it's considered part of your theoretical work that you right. trained in. Right. Well, I guess first I'd say you know there there are deep connections um, um, again to my personal history. So uh, I I you know I think you're referencing mostly my second book Sexual Injustice which focused on Supreme Court decisions and especially six decisions in the 60s and 70s on birth control abortion interracial marriage obscenity and homosexuality the latter mostly in the form of a gay immigration case from 1967 that that I really wanted to put on the map alongside better known decisions like Roe versus Wade Griswold versus Connecticut and Loving versus Virginia um, but here's the thing, the, the connection to the personal. So in 1987, during that period when I was living in Boston and, and editing Gay Community News, I was one of the New England organizers of the March on Washington um, and, you know, not only went to Boston, but participated in the civil disobedience at the Supreme Court uh, two days later um, because uh, it was just a year after the Supreme Court's a horribly conservative decision in Bowers versus Hardwick upholding state sodomy laws. Uh, so I had, you know, I had longstanding deep interest in legal history, legal issues, constitutional law, and was willing to put my body on the line, getting arrested, um, doing direct action at the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, and then fast forward a few years, I was a, a grad student just writing a seminar paper for a class on legal history taught by Mary Frances Berry, who was then a member and later became the chair of the US Civil Rights Commission. Um, and I ended up writing the paper on this gay immigration case, Boudelier versus the INS. And, you know, I was deeply interested, in, you know, I'm the grandchild of immigrants um, from Eastern Europe. Um, I myself immigrated to Canada where I lived for 16 years, uh, almost had trouble uh, staying in Canada because um, of Canada's uh, uh, HIV AIDS rules. I was not HIV positive, but had I been, I might have lost my job in Canada because of the way they handled my permanent residency application. Uh, and so, you know, so there were points of identification, I would say, with, with Clive uh, Boudelier. Um, but, uh, but then years later, you know, I, uh, I ended up moving to Canada, right, and looking and trying to decide on a second book project, I thought uh, I would 
um, focus on this decision, which concerned a Canadian man ultimately deported from the United States on the grounds that his homosexuality uh, equaled a psychopathic personality, which was the grounds for exclusion and deportation under US immigration law. Uh, and so, um, you know, but when I was working out the project, I thought, I don't want to just do this as a gay rights story. So that's what led me to juxtapose the Boudelier case alongside the liberalizing, better known decisions, Griswold, Loving, Eisenstadt, um, Roe versus Wade. And, um, you know, and that kind of turned me into a legal historian. So the position I have at SF State is in legal history in constitutional law. The courses that I teach most frequently at SF State are not in the history of sexuality or queer history. Uh, I, I mostly teach constitutional law uh, and, uh, you know, have written a, ended up writing a, you know, series of related essays about queer, uh, queer legal history. So there was a connection, yeah, to my activist history and personal, um, personal background, but, um, but uh, yeah, decided in that second big book project to, to turn, um, to, to constitutional law in the Supreme Court. Yeah, well, you've given your work and um, au revoir gives me such inspiration when now I'm so public here on the podcast, but also with those I get to be in company with, which I'm so grateful, just such a wide range of conversations that um, I've put myself out there more just in terms of my profile and what it means to do male homoerotic literary work or historical cultural work broadly like even if i'm discussing about playgirls history that um it does really shape your research i mean even when i'm talking about victorian sexuality and literature and whitman trying to discuss it without having language and how does all of this happen it's part of your own it's part of my own interest in not just my own journey, but probably how you feel, Mark, of just how you see arts and culture and how you're um, finding yourself in different um, literature, film, TV, music, theater, yes. however you absorb it all. And I think it's it's exciting to see that academics, um, how they process their everyday lives, that it doesn't just come out on the page. Uh, in some type of um, miasma or magic act. It's, uh, it doesn't just poof appear into a book that this these are um, analyses you're always thinking of. Right, and, and you know, yeah, no, I, I think absolutely. And you know, and the relationships between, in that sense, the personal and the intellectual are complicated. They're not linear, right? Mm -hmm. There are aspects of my identity that I have not studied, that I'm not an expert in, and other aspects that have really become central. And, you know, how would I explain why I, I've been so focused on queer history, but not Jewish history, right? Um, and, you know, we could have a conversation about that. And, uh, and then, you know, with respect to the Supreme Court project, I went into that project thinking, um, uh, that, that uh, Bowers versus Hardwick in 1987 reflected, sorry, 1986 reflected a real right rightward turn uh, on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. But then as I studied Boudelier versus the INS, a conservative decision in the midst of the liberalizing Warren Court era, I realized that my initial hypothesis was wrong, that the court had not turned in a conservative direction 
when it uh, decided to uphold state sodomy laws. It, it was consistent with the Warren court's sexual conservatism. Um, and so, you know, I think we have to be prepared to be surprised uh, and prepared to find the unexpected. And so those who would dismiss, you know, the connections between the personal uh, and the intellectual, I think often fail to see that um, there's not a literal linear relationship between you know those things, and even in with my Philadelphia book, um, there were there was a professor in particular at Penn who, I think, assumed I was writing a celebratory, um, a celebratory history, where I thought I was writing a critical history. And my Philadelphia book is filled with critiques of gay men on for their sexism, critiques of white gay people for their racism, uh, and you know, I was not uh, writing in that moment when uh, the kind of first generation moment when lots of historical scholarship often uh, tends to be contributionist and celebrationist. Uh, you know, I was part of the, the more critical turn. I saw myself as doing a, 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 a queer history of gay and lesbian politics uh, with those terms you know, chosen, you know, chosen deliberately. But also, you know, my partner, Jorge Olivares, um, Cuban American, uh, Latin American literature professor, ended up writing his second book on the Cuban gay writer, Ronaldo Arenas, who he actually knew and interviewed, um, who also, like Jorge, migrated to the United States. Uh, so there were you know, common themes in their um, personal journeys, but also totally different um, uh, trajectories. Uh, and uh, Jorge was really interested in his book in doing, you know, deep literary analysis, but uh, um, textual readings, but also incorporating some biographical uh, readings that connected uh, Arenas's life to his fiction. And then at, at, at all times, he was reflecting on the relationship between his own uh, experiences um, as a Cuban American exile immigrant to uh, Reynaldo's um, uh, experiences uh, in that regard as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I wouldn't be doing my interviewer job justice if I didn't bring up, well, a few topics that you don't have to dive deep, but to use these as more of a case study of just what we haven't gotten to, which is the obstacles that you face that I know anyone who takes these risks of putting their topics out there mixed with their own um, personal lives that, you know, you have to really be ready for backlash, but also defend your work, which I think is the purpose of art is you put it out there and then people respond to it in different ways. But you have an essay on Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton and the sexual act. You have uh, discussions around, um, like you've already said, gay rights in the Supreme Court, the FBI and queer cases, um, even um, like coming into the current day, you, you know, talk also about Stonewall and just Stonewall's, how it's been perceived, interpreted, its legacy. And there's so many different critiques about how we view Stonewall now in the 21st century. But okay, so I put all of that out there on the table on our buffet of sorts. But yeah, how do you, maybe advice for those out there who are really maybe queer historians, they're queer academics, or even just queer artists in general who 
want to be more authentic with their presentation of art? How do you process that risky business, so to speak? LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org and scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have any questions, email stephen.hemrick at glreview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. And remember that they're offering an exclusive code with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So when you subscribe to the magazine, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. So that's seven issues instead of six. Again, just visit theglreview.org and click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR for your free issue. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E, Made It, or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs, and if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So, go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. Right, right. No, I, I really appreciate the question. Uh, I, so I think this is maybe especially true for queer historians, but it's true for, for historians and scholars in general. You know, we're going to encounter obstacles and challenges and, uh, you know, and those test us. And and I think I I have brought a, a really an activist sensibility to many of those struggles. So right, the FBI um, short essay tells the story of um, I was working on Abe Fortas, Supreme Court Justice in the '60s, and interested um, in his story. And there was an FBI file that suggested that he might have had uh, same-sex sexual experiences. And the FBI, when I asked for the file. 
which had been previously requested under the Freedom of Information Act, denied that it had it, claiming that it was lost. And so I used this essay to kind of what I think of as smoke out the file. Um, I wanted to publicly shame the FBI for this uh, ridiculous uh, response to my request. And sure enough, within weeks or months of my publishing that essay, the FBI miraculously found um, the missing Fortis file and allowed me to, to incorporate that you know, into my Supreme Court book. Um, another of the essays um, tells the story of applying for a National Endowment for Humanities Fellowship for the Supreme Court project, getting the top possible ratings um, in the peer review process, five out of five ratings of five, uh, excellent. Uh, and uh, then being vetoed by the George Bush appointed um, uh, chair of the NEH, which the chair is legislatively allowed to do. He has that authority. So essentially there was no appeal, except that uh, I decided to appeal to the court of public opinion um, by telling the story. And it's not fun to, um, you know, to share publicly the story of getting rejected for a fellowship. Um, but here I had the evidence because I requested the peer assessments, which apparently very few people do. Um, that's what you know provided me with the information that no, there were pretty minimal criticisms and very high scores, uh, and that it was uh, a lie when the NEH uh, head said that the highest rated proposals were given grants, because no, mine was one of the highest rated proposals and other people who were not um, uh, rated as highly ended up getting the grants when they rejected mine. Uh, so, you know, so that was just a, a case of wanting to uh, turn to the court of public opinion and I think shame the NEH because the story ended up getting picked up by the mainstream higher education media. Um, uh, so, um, you know, so I think, you know, in, in a few of those cases, it, you know, for me, it was a matter of not uh, you know, not just being quiet and accepting rejection uh, and uh, thinking that, you know, sharing the stories would, you know, would have some uh, broader value. Um, yeah, and then I, I think the Stonewall, the Stonewall book and the Stonewall section of the queer public history book is maybe, you know, somewhat uh, different, um, but there it was more that I was interested in shifting um, shifting the narrative. So we have a certain way of telling the Stonewall story that I think is very New York focused. It's very focused on a particular week. It increasingly focuses on a very small cast of characters. So, you know, I, I got some critical negative feedback from um, my queer history friends. Why are you doing a reader on Stonewall? Shouldn't we be trying to displace um, uh, you know, attention and interest away from the, the event that is most studied in all of queer history. And, you know, and my response was exactly. I, I did a reader that was nine years uh, in focus, not focused on a single week in a single month. Uh, it was national in scope, not just focused on Greenwich Village. Um, and the reader, which features 200 documents and a set of photographs and maps um, over the course of nine year period, all connected in some way to Stonewall, but telling the story of the lead up to and the after effects of and the broader national the national narrative, you know, it's precisely meant to say, yeah, Stonewall is really important and we have to think about how to tell the story, but there are different ways to tell the story. 
Uh, and uh, why aren't we paying attention to all of these other amazing protests, riots, sit-ins, demonstrations that have received um, so little attention? Why have we not concentrated as much on what was going on at the same time as Stonewall in San Francisco, Chicago, uh, Detroit, Los Angeles, Washington, Miami, you know, and any number of other places. Uh, so yeah, bringing it back to you, the book includes some some events in Long Island, <laughs> you know, particularly particularly horrible police attacks on gay activists on Long Island uh, in the early seventies. Um, and again, you know, I think th th those have received really limited attention, but. Um, but isn't it isn't it interesting that within a few years of the riots in Greenwich Village, there are um, you know violent episodes in small town Long Island, uh, right? Um, um, yeah. And uh, it's it's this um, catalyst of sorts, almost like a chemistry equation when you're doing. Um, even when a solid turns to a liquid, there has to be some kind of catalyst. I was going to be a double major in chemistry with English, but that's a story for a different podcast uh, when I was an undergrad, but right, that it really ignites. What I love is you look at all of these tremors of, as if it's an earthquake, like just how people respond to it all over the country. And it's, you really open up so many conversations in all of your queer public history essays around not just the metropolitan, um, LGBT history, which I think we all need to know, right? We all are aware of, um, but how it ripples out and it does create the shattering effect of questioning now queer life in rural areas and suburban areas and um, how there's such a global history now of what's going on, how we're a queer community in one town, it does affect how queer communities view each other and uh, even the language they speak with each other and the nuances. So I love what you've done with that, Mark. It's yeah, wonderful you, to you. see. And yeah, and even, you know, it, and sometimes it's even really close um, geographic connections. So when I learned about uh, this vigilante uh, uh, neighborhood action in Queens, the borough of Queens, New York, um, to, mm -hmm. to that ended up chopping down dozens of trees in a public cruising, a gay public cruising park, uh, in Queens, New York, um, in Kew Gardens. And to realize it was the same month as Stonewall and uh, the newspapers in New York paid much more attention to what happened in Kew Gardens than they did to Stonewall. So that raises all sorts of questions about why, if at the time that was the media focus, why then do we remember Stonewall, but we don't remember both the vigilante actions and then the gay protests against the vigilantes. Um, you know, and another of the chapters in Queer Public History tells a story of, of, a, of a trans woman in North Carolina, not exactly small town, it was Charlotte, you know, it's a pretty big city, but a mid-sized city then, um, you know, who um who whose story I I unearthed, who uh, was a sex worker and was arrested on a sodomy charge. Uh, and her case ended up being brought to national attention, uh, both in the mainstream media and the gay media. Uh, and she won a court case with the judge saying that the long sentence that re she received what constituted cruel and unusual punishment. 
I mean, utterly groundbreaking in the mid 1960s, trans history. And I, uh, what I, I was motivated to do that story in truth, partly because my parents retired to North Carolina and I, you know, visit them at least once a year. And uh, so I had a, you know, an excuse to go to um, the research libraries at UNC and Duke. Um, but also I started it in the middle of the North Carolina trans bathroom uh, controversy, you know, some years ago. And I thought, how could, uh, how could I, put my historical research and writing skills to use to show that, well, actually, you know, North Carolina has a really interesting trans history. It's really a brutal history. The fact that, um, you know, the person I studied was, uh, you know, was arrested and given uh, such a lengthy prison sentence, but also a history, you know, a trans resistance that stretches back much earlier than, you know, than I think had previously been, been understood and recognized. So, you know, again, I guess it's a kind of another example of a of a contemporary political development motivating me because of my personal politics to undertake a scholarly research project and then wanting to share it to you know a broader public audience. And then, you know, I was super pleased when one of the court cases in North Carolina cited my work um, in a in a legal brief. Um, you know, and so. Uh, you know, this kind of work, even if it's presented to a broad public audience, can get taken up in, you know, legal and political realms in in useful ways. Yeah, well, and I've had on here Sarah Shulman, who writes such a nice uh, response to your book. And I'm thinking of just what she talks about is really resonating. I'm considering you, her, uh, Michaela Grifo, who I just had on, who was part of the Gay Liberation Front. And knew like knows the Stonewall history intimately. Um, you all share three things in common. Like I'm gonna all consider you um, uh, these queer forces of whistleblowing in a way um, and bringing this history. But also, you each teach us, and your work really does mark in queer public history about how history is remembered, how stories are passed on, and that. It's not when the moment occurs, that's not when um, history starts. The archive isn't when the moment occurs, it's how it's passed down and, you know, how it's written or how even now it's in um, podcasts or interviews in media spaces, on television, in films, and it's representational power. So. For that, I want to thank you, Mark, and ask you for my final question. I can't believe we're at the end, but, you know, Mark and I, for all of you out there, we're going to have our own, we're in touch with each other. So Mark and I get to continue our conversations, thankfully, and you'll be invited back here again. I know it. Um, but, you know, what are you working on right now in 2023 that's uh, inspiring you or continuing your legacy of just unearthing queer history. Uh, yeah, well, I'm I'm really looking forward to our future collaborative uh, projects together, and uh, yeah, I have a lot of a lot of balls in the air. So directing out history is a huge uh, challenge, and and that's more in in a I, I think primarily in an editor's role um, and website creation, design, and management role. Um, but I'm also the co-editor, as you know, and this is where I think our collaboration is heading, uh, a digital history project called Queer Pasts, which is published by Alexander Street ProQuest, 
Um, and basically we publish uh, historical documents projects and we're just finishing our ninth right now. Um, and these are basically historical essays uh, published alongside 20 to 40 primary sources so that the reader can kind of see the sources on which the scholar uh, is basing their work. Uh, and uh, I do some of the exhibits myself. So I did one um, in the first year of Queer Pasts on prison sexual violence. Uh, and in the 1960s, a major groundbreaking study of prison sexual violence in Philadelphia. Uh, and then the one that just came out is my first venture in 19th century history, um, a project on the New York City sodomites of the 1840s, one of our first uh, examples of a kind of collection of primary source evidence suggesting the early uh, formation existence of something resembling a gay community. Um, so yeah, lots going on with queer pasts. Um, my next big book project um, is uh, Queering the Bicentennial. So this is taking me back to Philadelphia um, and moving uh, forward a little bit in time, focusing on that moment in 1976 when the country was celebrating its 200th birthday, uh, lots of attention in Philadelphia. So I'm looking at the queer bromance of, of um, Frank Rizzo and Richard Nixon. I'm looking at queer porn that used bicentennial themes uh, at that moment. And I'm also looking at um, LGBT participation in the counter bicentennial protests that took place you know, throughout that summer, but especially on, on, uh, on July 4th. So um, I'm hoping to finish that in time for the country's 250th birthday, because I think it's gonna be another moment when we'll sadly have be experiencing another explosion of, of conservative nationalism and patriotism. And I think, you know, queer people have to find progressive ways to relate to that. Um, and then maybe finally, I'll mention just one other thing I'm working yeah, on right yeah. now. Um, so, um, and this relates, it's actually gonna be co-published by Queer Pasts and Out History, I hope. I've been working on um, a database timeline chronology bibliography of LGBT direct action. And uh, basically it's a, a database of 600 protests, sit-ins, riots, demonstrations from 1965 to 73. And right now I'm working on expanding it, 74, 75, 76. Um, and it, it, it is kind of a new way of looking at that same era that I, that I seem to keep going back to, but again, trying to kind of broaden out beyond the annual reminder and Stonewall uh, to look at the hundreds of others um, of protests and hopefully uh, excite other researchers into uh, doing more in-depth studies of some of the, you know, the other major protests and demonstrations that took place uh, around the country in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, well, thank you, Mark. And also, you know, uh, if anyone listening to this, you need more uh, queer history discussions the podcast has a lot and I know Mark is being now a dutiful listener and I appreciate that. But I also want to mention Dominic Jaynes. He was at the Queer History Conference and his episode when this comes out is out. So if you want to know the 19th century Victorian queer history, you know, we have him, Chuck Upchurch. Uh, so wonderful company of all different perspectives. And you, you all, I just love how much are speaking to unearthing this history, providing these narratives. The work is continuing. I love seeing that it's now happening. Um, 
in podcast spaces, in digital media, like you're doing, Mark, with your queer past project. So yeah, continuing the inertia and the energy. Um, but, you know, for those of you who like me, and I know a lot of you want to have a book in your hand or a digital book, it is an ebook too. Um, yeah, it's an ebook. Uh, Queer Public History, Essays on Scholarly Activism, published by University of California Press. So uh, not far from where Mark, well, I think south of where you live, Mark. Uh, or is it north? Oh, 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 okay. Um, wait, where is University of California Press? Well, it's it, it's understood to be based at Berkeley, but actually, right now, it's it's um it uses Oakland. So uh, I, ah, I guess I okay. exactly north. It's more east of San well, Francisco. near San Francisco. Okay, but it's not Southern California. Okay, so Northern California can claim University of California Press. Sorry, Los Angeles. Uh, <laughs> but yes, queer public history. It is so exciting to see a collection of all of your queer historical work throughout the decades. And I can't wait to see what you continue to bring to our eyes, Mark. So thank you so much. This was wonderful. And my honor to have you here. Well, thanks very much. And congratulations and good luck with, uh, with the podcast, which it seems like thank it's going you. great. Thanks so much, Mark. Okay. And bye to everyone out there listening and bye, Mark. And I will be in touch with you soon. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay. Bye, Mark. Welcome to the spring season. This is Andrew from the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Make sure that you always listen to our new episodes on Mondays. Are you following us on social media? No? Oh, you need to. Follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. Hey, true crime friends. This is Married to Pippi, host of True Crime in Academia. Don't forget, episodes come out on Fridays at 7.30 p.m. And you can also follow True Crime in Academia on social media. On Instagram and TikTok, we're at True Crime in Academia. And on Twitter, at TC in Academia. And Mary and I... We need some coffee. We need to keep a pep in our step and we just need that caffeine. So do you we know sound we sound energetic? The... We're not. We're tired. Yeah, yeah, no, this is all coffee. So the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe is our Patreon, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. $5 a month unlocks so many bonus episodes. So for the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you get Mary and I, our exclusive Winter arts and culture hot takes, including what do we think about Prince Harry, Pamela Anderson? Where are Oscars predictions right? Why does James Cameron have to make Avatar movies? We want more Titanic. Okay. And also, I dissect straight gym bro culture with Dominic Janes. Why are people afraid of sodomy? You get all the uncensored conversations on Patreon. That's where our bonus episodes are. And I know, Mary, what do you have on Patreon? Oh, we have a lot right now. I cover cases that I would not cover on the podcast. So if you want to access those, like Andrew said, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. So you can see episodes from true crime, like the dating game killer, AKA Rodney Alcala, or you can see the live video interviews that we have done. Most recently, I interviewed not one, but two forensic psychologists. And 
get this. I only released 30 minutes of the actual audio to the podcast. So that means the whole extra 30 minutes is on Patreon just for subscribers. Wait, an extra 30 minutes? An See, extra 30 minutes. a cup of coffee, everyone. Okay, well, I also want to shout out our amazing internship team here. So our interns include Andrea, Sarah, Caitlin, Rosie, and Sheila. A round of applause to all of them. We thank you. They keep the ivory tower boiler room literally going. Uh, so Mary and I are so appreciative. Thanks to our audience. And we can't wait to see you back here. Bye, everyone.